passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Well, this morning we're continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 14. But for the last few weeks, if you've been with us in this study, it has been a wild, crazy ride in these chapters. And that's sort of an understatement. You remember it started in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where David, the guy with many wives, actually decided to pursue an affair with a woman named Bathsheba who was already married. And when she came up pregnant, he decided to bump off her husband, Uriah. Not a good thing for a king to do. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan, he called him on the carpet with regard to his sin. And the good news is David confessed his sin. He repented of his sin. And God was so quick to forgive him of his sin. David didn't die. David was allowed to remain as the king. But as we learned in that week, that even when God forgives sin, there still are consequences that come from that sin. One of the consequences was David lost his infant son with Bathsheba, who passed away shortly after he was born. But it wasn't just one son he lost. We saw that he would lose a total of four sons. So there are three more to go. Then last week, when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 13, that was a really crazy ride. We were introduced to David's oldest son, a man named Amnon, and like his father, he became um, consumed with lust for also a forbidden woman. This forbidden woman was not another man's wife. It was actually his sister, his sister named Tamar. And like his father, he refused to resist those lustful urges. He ended up raping his own sister. This is like, rape's bad enough, but incestual rape, that's really bad. What we found is David did absolutely nothing about it. Uh, David should have at least removed him from being next in line to the throne and should have disciplined him in some way. Technically, according to the Old Testament law, his oldest son should have been killed for what he had done. But David did nothing for, for two years. And after two years, Tamar's brother, a man named Absalom, who was second in line to the throne after Amnon, decided that he was frustrated with his father's inactivity. He was going to take vengeance in his own hands, and he killed his older brother, which probably isn't a good thing. Now that he's second, in, now he's next in line to the throne, which is what he wanted all along, but he's also a cold-blooded murderer. And Absalom, as we finished last week, he ran for his life. He ran to the kingdom of Geshur, where his maternal grandfather reigned as king. And that's where the situation ended last week. For three years, David did absolutely nothing about the murder that Absalom had done. And we started to see a consistent pattern here. For two years, David did not address Amnon, and the rape he did of his own sister. For three years, David did nothing and did not address Absalom with the murder of his own brother. Today, we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 14. This chapter 
is the story of the restoration of Absalom in his return to the kingdom. At first, when I say the restoration of Absalom, all of a sudden our eyes brighten a little bit. We think, oh, this is hope. Things are finally going to go well for David and his family. Absolutely not. Absalom may return, but there is absolutely no restoration between father and son. Absalom will return still an unrepentant murderer. And it is going to lead to a complete mess, because next week we'll find him trying to overthrow and eliminate his own father. There's one main idea that runs through this entire chapter. It's not your typical preaching idea, but you'll see it definitely holds this entire chapter together. I put this on the top of your outline as a bullet point. It's this. Ignoring justice and extending leniency to those who refuse to repent leads to disaster. Ignoring justice and extending leniency to those who have refused to repent will lead to disaster. Now, this is not just what we see in this chapter, but if you think about that statement, isn't this what happens in everyday life? And think about some of the cities where you have uh, criminals who are arrested, but there's district attorneys that just let them out with no bail. District attorneys that refuse to prosecute them. Uh, do they now stop their offenses or do they just go right back to continuing their offenses? They go right back to doing what they were doing. Uh, ignoring justice and extending leniency to those who refuse to repent is not just something we see in everyday society, but something we all struggle with as parents, isn't it? Sometimes our kids will do things and we're torn between how do we discipline them, but at the same point, they're our kids, so we love them. And it's, it's hard to know exactly where the line is. And that's the struggle that David has this morning. He ignores the justice. Well, there's a word, a word that'll also sort of break this chapter into sections, and it's the word manipulation. As we'll see, this chapter is about three manipulations. First, Joab will manipulate David. Then David will turn around and manipulate Joab. And then Absalom will turn around and manipulate both David and Joab. And when the key word for the chapter that breaks it apart is manipulation, you know it's not going to end good, will it? So let's go ahead and start on the top of your outlines with the first manipulation. Joab manipulated David. Remember the situation. Absalom has been in self-imposed exile for three years in the kingdom of Gesher. It begins with this. Now Joab, the son of Zerui, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. I hate to begin with this way, but it, I need to be honest as I begin. This is a very difficult Hebrew verse. If you were with us last week, you know the last verse of the last chapter, and here the first verse of this chapter are some difficult Hebrew. And we have to untangle this difficult Hebrew if we're going to understand the flow of this chapter. The ESV translates this as the idea that David really missed Absalom and wanted him back. I'm going to tell you I don't agree with that. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite thing that is taking place. If David really missed Absalom and wanted him back, 
we wouldn't need about half of this chapter, which is Joab trying to trick him into bringing him back. It doesn't make sense that way. This verse and the last verse of the last chapter, they're connected in the Hebrew together. They're sort of put together in one unit of thought, which is why they're all difficult. This is what the last verse in the last chapter said. The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Here's the challenge. The words longed and comforted. If you look them up in the Hebrew dictionary, they can be translated in, the words can be translated in a positive sense or they can be translated in a negative sense depending on the context as you're reading it. So the ESV and a number of other modern translations take this as positive words. And that's why they use the idea of longed for Absalom. And he was comforted in the death of Amnon. But the problem is, if you were with us last week, you know that a little earlier in chapter 13, there was a statement that David never got over the death of Amnon, his oldest son that he mourned the death of that son until his dying day. If that is true, this verse, verse 39, cannot be translated positively. It should be translated with a negative tone to it, which would be this, as I have in your outline. The spirit of the king was done with Absalom. He's just written this guy off because he regretted Amnon's death. And when you get into the first verse of chapter 14, where we just started, the interesting part is there's no verb. It actually picks up the sense of the last verse. So if the last verse is negative, then this first verse should be also understood to be negative. In which case, it should be translated like this. Now, Joab, the son of Zerui, knew that the king's heart was against Absalom. If you realize that, all of a sudden, this entire chapter makes much better sense. David is against Absalom. He doesn't want him back. He is still angry over the fact that he killed his older brother in cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And that's something dads don't get over, is it? I don't think so. Now, I realize what I'm saying. Sounds like it's coming out of completely left field. Who are you, pastor, to disagree with the ESV translation and a number of other modern translations? I want you to know I am not alone. I'd like to do my research. And a number of the best Hebrew scholars disagree with modern translation, the modern translation of these two verses in what I just shared with you. So I do feel like I stand on some pretty good ground by expressing my disagreement there. So here's the situation. Joab sees the ongoing anger that David has towards Absalom, his son. But he realizes that Absalom, his son, is next in line for the throne. And when it comes to succession, it's going to be a real mess unless David and Absalom somehow can make this relationship work, and unless David can somehow restore Absalom, things will not go well. Incidentally, we'll see that Absalom is a very popular guy. 
And a broken relationship between father and son actually doesn't tend to work really well for David as well. I also think Joab had a little personal history that played into this. If you remember earlier in the, the book of books of Samuel, Joab at one point, and Joab is the commander of David's army, he murdered Abner, the commander of Israel's army, in cold blood, unprovoked. Joab was restored to his position and continued to serve as the commander of David's army. He looks at Absalom and says, he murdered his brother, but I think he understand, I can understand why he murdered him. After all, he raped my sister, you know, or he raped his sister Amnon. I think that Absalom should also be restored to his position, uh, just like I was restored to my position. Incidentally, just so you know, when we get a little further in this book, when we get to 2 Samuel 18, Joab will radically change his mind. In fact, Joab will be the one who actually takes Absalom out and kills him. But at this point, Joab is for Absalom. He's pro-Absalom. And he's going to devise a, uh, a plot to manipulate David from being against his son to softening his heart towards his son. And Job's thinking, I remember Nathan the prophet. Remember Nathan the prophet called David out on his sin with Bathsheba, and he didn't do it directly. He told David a story of the rich man and the poor man, the little ewe lamb, and that story tended to work to soften David's heart. So Job says, maybe I should make up a story, a story that I can use to soften David's heart. And that's what he does. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Now pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Tekoa is a region about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Nobody that David would know would be down there. And Joab finds what's called a wise woman. Now, at first, that sounds like a compliment. It's actually not. That word wise is sort of the same word that was also translated as crafty in the last chapter. Remember a guy with crafty words in the last chapter? His name was Jonadab. Jonadab was the guy who came up with the trick so Amnon could rape his sister. Jonadab was the guy who was involved in the plot by Absalom to murder his brother. The introduction of another person who is crafty with their words and good at manipulating people is not a good thing. Because this is what the lady is going to do. She's going to try to manipulate David with her words. She's going to play on his heartstrings, if you will, into having him make a very foolish and very unwise choice, choosing to bring his unrepentant, wicked son home. Now, the story of, that she's going to tell to um, David 
actually is the longest and most complex story in the entire books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're going to move through it rather quickly. I'll try and explain it as we go. It's actually not that hard if you just break it into chunks, but you'll see how her story goes. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Oh, save me, O king! And the king said, Well, what is your trouble? Now remember, the story she's going to tell is completely fictional. It was given to her by Joab. She is just, at this point, a really good actor. And she's playing the part of a poor, oppressed widow, which when you come to the king and ask the king to save you, like that's the kind of thing that kings like to do, right? Save poor, oppressed widows. So it plays right into David. She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. And there was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. This widow claims, I had two sons and they got into a fight. By the way, if you have two sons, don't they get into fights sometimes? And they get a little bit angry sometimes? Well, she says, they got into a fight and one accidentally killed the other one. And now the clan wants to kill the remaining son to take retribution for the murder that he has done. Which, incidentally, sounds like a good and biblical thing because there is a passage in the Bible. For instance, Exodus 21.12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But she claims, I have mitigating circumstances that should change that. And here's her circumstances. If they killed her remaining son, there would be no heir. There'd be no place for the family property to go. So the property would be reabsorbed into the general community, which means everybody gets a piece of her property. And so they have a motivation to try and get rid of this final son because they actually get something out of it. Secondly, if they quenched the remaining coal in her life, that meant they would take away her only source of warmth and joy. If they killed her remaining son, I mean, what is there left for a widow besides her son? There's nothing else left in her life. And thirdly, the family line would be absolutely wiped out. There's no going back. It doesn't appear that David gave much thought to this case. He quickly decided on this case. He immediately responded with these words. Then the, then the king said to the woman, Go to your house. I will give orders concerning you. Okay, I'll make sure your son will not be killed. Bailiff, we are done. Next case, move on. That was it. Well, unfortunately, the woman was not quite satisfied with that quick, simple answer. She said this. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord the king. And on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. 
you realize David hasn't taken any time to research any of this. He hasn't taken any time to make sure that she's telling the truth. So she immediately responds by saying, I know how you've already decided, but just so you want to be sure, you can check anything out. My story is completely true. I'm not bending the truth in any way. And if I've not told the truth, may the guilt be on me, not on you. Just trying to make sure that he knows he made the right decision. Which, by the way, the whole thing is funny because the entire story is a lie, right? <laughs> and the king said, well, if anyone says anything to you, just bring him to me. He shall never touch you again. David, I told you not to worry about it. No one's going to question. If anybody bugs you in this matter, just send them to me and they'll never bother you again. And I picture David at that point turning away from her, looking over to the side saying, next case, please. Let's move on. But this lady, she wasn't satisfied with that. She pipes up again. At this point, I think she's starting to get a little annoying. She just won't go away. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now, you may wonder, now she brings up an avenger of blood. Who's this guy? In the early part of the Old Testament, before there was a king, if somebody was killed and it was unjustly done, the family would appoint an avenger of blood to carry out justice that was done against someone when they were murdered. You can read about this in Numbers 35. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. David swears an oath by God himself at this point. I've told you, don't worry about it. If there's an avenger of blood who's out to get even with your son, he's not going to touch him. David loved to defend the widows. David loved to defend the poor. He loved to defend the oppressed. So her story and this whole shenanigan is really playing right into David's sweet spot, the way his heart is wired. Now she pipes up again. But when she pipes up, she switches from talking about her imaginary sons to now actually talking about David's actual son, Absalom. The woman said, well, please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Almost as an aside, she switches from talking about her story to talking about David and Absalom. And she says, King, you're living by a double standard. My son killed his brother. 
My son deserves to die, yet you have set him free and allowed for him to come home. But your son also killed his brother. But you haven't set him free, and you haven't allowed him to come home. Her purpose in her story is to guilt David, to manipulate David into restoring Absalom, his son. And her guilting worked. It really touched David's heartstrings. And then just as fast as she slipped into accusing David of living by a devil standard, she slips back under cover of being a poor, oppressed widow. And now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request for your servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. I'm done. So you notice how she does this? She ends this little conversation with all kinds of flattery of David. Just put, you know, put the icing on the top. Oh, you're such a smart and good and wise King David. But at this point, David's starting to figure things out. This seems all too weird. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all of these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on earth. Yep, you figured it out, David. Joab put me up to all this. He gave me the story. But still, the story worked. David's heart was pricked. David felt convicted that while he was freeing uh, another woman's son from murder and letting him come home, he was not freeing his own son from murder and restoring Absalom at home. Now, in a moment, David is going to change his mind about bringing unrepentant, his unrepentant son back. But before we go into that part of the story, I want to pause and look at her story and see if it was really a parallel to the story that David has with Amnon and Absalom, his own sons. Is this guilting that she put on him to try and change his mind actually fair? Now, the story was similar to David's situation, but it differed in important ways. Here they are. Number one, in her story, one brother unintentionally killed the other, which was manslaughter. 
Absalom committed cold-blooded murder. They are different in a big way. In the Old Testament, if you unintentionally killed someone, you could flee to what was known as the city of refuge and find safety if you stayed in the city of refuge. But if you committed premeditated, cold-blooded murder, there was no going to a city of refuge. You were to lose your life. This is what it says. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which you may flee, known as the city of refuge. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. That's an open and closed case. Second way these stories are different in her story, the son was the only heir in the family. While Absalom was the, favorite, was the favored son, David had other sons. If David chose to keep him at arm's length and David chose to not make him the next king, that would be totally fair. In fact, you know he doesn't make Absalom the next king. Solomon becomes the next king. Three, in her story, the clan wanted to kill her son. But by the way, nobody wanted to kill Absalom, did they? David should have tried to kill his son, but he didn't. In her story, she spoke of God devising ways for the banished to return. Well, this is true, but it is only for those who are repentant and forgiven. Now, with David, God devised a way for him to return after the murder of Uriah and the adultery with Bathsheba. But that was because he was repentant. Then God forgave him, and God didn't take his life from him, and God allowed him to remain as king because he repented. Absalom has no interest in repentance. He feels quite justified in the murder of his older brother. Big difference here. God does not devise ways for the unrepentant sinners to return. Now, notice what she had done. She had appealed to David's heartstrings, accused him of a double standard. And in the emotion, in the emotion of the moment, David made the decision to bring his unrepentant son home. And I thought to myself, isn't this the way Satan likes to work in our lives? All of a sudden, in the emotion of the moment, when we feel bad or we feel glad, we make a snap judgment decision that if we had just waited 10 minutes longer, if we had just prayed about it a little bit more, if we had just called a Christian friend, if we had just checked God's words, we would have never, ever made but in the, this, in the moment when our emotions are playing in our heart, we make a really poor choice that we live to regret. That's what David does in this moment, and that's what we do in this moment. So the simple application is when you feel that, that you want to make a decision, and you're not too sure if it's the right decision because you're emotionally making it, stop, pause, think, walk away, pray, talk to a friend. 
so you don't regret it. So here's the decision David makes that he regrets. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. Yippee! And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. And Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Joab's thrilled. And he goes, but while he's traveling, and David has those 10 minutes to think about the decision he made and the emotions of the moment, he regrets it. And here we go. David now will turn around and manipulate Joab. David knows he can't go back in his word. Absalom is coming to town, but he decides that instead of connecting with Absalom and restoring Absalom, he'll do everything to hold Absalom at bay. Verse 24, and the king said, well, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. David knew that he had the responsibility as the judge of the nation to execute his son for what he'd done. But he didn't have heart for that but he also knew it would be completely wrong to free his son after what he'd done. But he didn't want to do that either. So he, he just pushes him off and keeps him away. Here's the problem. Absalom is now back in town. Absalom's not a good guy. Everybody who doesn't like David, who doesn't like his kingdom, who doesn't like his leadership, now has a rallying point. Absalom. And he's going to start to build a coup right under David's nose. Now we go to the third manipulation. Now Absalom manipulated Joab and David. Before we get into that manipulation, the author of the text wants us to know what kind of a man Absalom was. And this is very insightful. In verse 25, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance. Absalom was what you and I would call a beautiful man. Remember, his sister was an extremely beautiful woman. So we have an extremely good-looking guy. Think Arnold Schwarzenegger, not today, but like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime when he was doing the movie Terminator, you know, that one? That's what Absalom looks like. And he is a celebrity with the people. David may have shunned him, but the entire nation loved him. Nobody, it says, in all the nation was better looking than he was. He was on the cover of all the magazines. The girls couldn't get their eyes off him. And he knew it. His ego was bigger than this room. Now, if you've been with us in this study for a while, all of a sudden, you might start to say, I think I've heard that before. Somebody who was extremely good-looking on the outside, but who was super corrupt on the inside. You guys remember King Saul? 
Here's what we have. King Saul, 1 Samuel. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. David's son Absalom is Saul 2.0. Extremely good looking on the outside, extremely corrupt on the inside, and also committed to destroying David. Not the kind of guy you should have welcomed back to town. And from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was absolutely no blemish on him. Translated, he was an absolutely perfect male specimen. A complete five-star physique. Wide lats, big muscular chest, chiseled biceps, completely ripped in his ab section, not a single blemish on his skin, and he had that amazing-looking chin that all of the women were drawn to. But while he looked so perfect on the outside, remember, he was a murderer on the inside. And the Bible tells us he was also a narcissist. In other words, he was really into himself. He liked to look in the mirror, which is not a good thing. You see guys that are really into the mirror? That's a red flag. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, and it was 200 shekels by the king's weight. The picture is he's what you and I would call a, a, a pretty boy, he liked to spend a lot of time in the mirror working on his hair every morning. He's one of those guys that has the really expensive shampoos and really expensive conditioners in the shower. And then he combs it for a long period of time, getting it just right, and puts a whole bunch of product into it before he walks out the door. And when he has his annual haircut, he would take off 200 shekels in the weight of hair, which is five pounds. Imagine losing five pounds in a haircut. I mean, that's thick, really luscious hair. It's Paul's laughing over there. <laughs> well, the picture we have of Absalom is he looks amazingly good on the outside, but he's totally corrupt on the inside. And it says this, there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was also a beautiful woman. Well, we're told that he has three sons here. By the time we get to chapter 18, when Absalom dies, it says he doesn't have any sons. So what, what's going on? He had three sons at this point, but all of them died as children. So the time he came to the end of his life, he didn't have an heir. But he did have a beautiful daughter. And the text wants us to know what he named her. Her name was Tamar. He named her after his raped sister who never got over what was done to her from the last chapter. In other words, what defines Absalom's life is what was done to his sister and getting revenge on David for what happened to her. That he names his own daughter after his sister. So we will always think of that and always remember that.
Now, at this point, we have a background on Absalom's character. The action begins. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. When Joab brought him back, he expected that he would be restored. He, he would be able to be forgiven for what he'd done. But that's not happened. Remember David? He has this constant technique. Just hold everybody at distance and do nothing about it. And at this point, it's been seven years since Absalom murdered his older brother. And he's getting tired. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. Oh, this is interesting. Remember at the beginning of the chapter how Joab was so pro-Absalom? Let's bring him back to town. He's brought him back to town. He's had two years to get to know him. And Joab wants absolutely nothing to do with him. Because Joab looked at him on the outside first and thought he was a great guy. But when he got to know him on the inside... He completely wanted to stay away at this point. Absalom is not used to somebody not listening to him and not obeying his command. So this is what he does. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. In the last chapter... Absalom had no problem committing murder of his older brother. In this chapter, he has no problem committing arson and burning down the field of Joab. Perry, would you like to lose a field to fire? Absolutely not. That's a lot of money. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? You can hear the panic right there. And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me if to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. <laughs> Absalom says to Joab, Next time when I come, you will call, won't you? one field on fire, I could light another field on fire. So you better learn to listen. By the way, I'm done waiting around. I could have stayed in Gesher. Bring me into the presence of the king, and if I'm guilty, have him put me to death with his very own hands. Do you think David's going to kill his own son? David can't discipline his own sons. Absalom knows it. He's calling his dad's bluff. He's manipulating his father into setting him free. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. And he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That kiss is what they would do at that time for the king to say, you're not guilty. But notice, they haven't seen each other for seven years. This is not a happy reunion. There's no hugging. There's no joy. There's no words. David doesn't say a thing. He just kisses his son to declare him innocent 
and free of his brother's murder. David was manipulated into doing this. And David will majorly regret doing this because now Absalom, who's committed to the destruction of his father, is in Jerusalem, set free. And in the next chapter, he will undermine him and try to overthrow him. What are the applications? I put these on the bottom of your outline for you. Number one, ignoring justice and extending leniency to those who refuse to repent leads to disaster. There's a world of difference between God forgiving a repentant David and God or in David forgiving an unrepentant Absalom. Worlds of difference. Number two, even if it's been a long time, those who refuse to repent will continue in sin if restored. It was seven years before this when Absalom murdered his brother, but as soon as he is set free in Jerusalem, he goes right back to his old ways in the next chapter. Number three, parents who fail to discipline their children will experience trouble. David refused to discipline Amnon after he's raped his sister. He refused to discipline Absalom after he murdered his brother. And the problems don't go away. You can't just ignore the problems. You have to address the problems. If you ignore them, they only get worse. And lastly is this. When we repent of our sins, God forgives us with open arms when we come home. Let me explain. David, when he forgave his son, there was no joy. There was no happiness. There was only that cold legal forgiveness of a peck on the cheek. Folks, doesn't it sometimes feel that maybe God is that way with us? After we failed, after we sin again, we know that God forgives us, but sometimes we think he forgives us and says, well, if I have to, I guess I will. The way David forgave Absalom is not the way God forgives us. The picture that God has for us comes out of Luke 15 of another prodigal son who ran away from home. And when he came to his senses and he came back, there his father had been looking on the horizon for him, waiting for him. When his father saw him, his father ran to him. His father embraced him. His father put on a special robe and gave him a special ring and killed the fattened calf and celebrated because when his son repented and come, came home, he was filled with joy. My friends, when we repent of our sin, God doesn't sit there and go, well, I guess I'll forgive you if I have to. When we repent of our sin, he throws his arms wide around us he holds us tight and he celebrates. And he says, my son was lost, but he has repented and come home. I love you. That, my friends, is the amazing God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us, that you're not manipulated into forgiving us, but you forgive us joyfully and you forgive us sacrificially and you embrace us and you celebrate when we repent and come home. Thank you for your forgiveness being so lavish, so wonderful, so joyful and good. And all God's people said,
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.